having a beer after a hard day's work once meant putting up with a six o'clock swill. The swill is not only unpleasant, it's also dangerous. Those who like beer, and surprisingly it's still legal to like it. South Australia joins all other states in abandoning the six o'clock swill. Welcome to this historic edition of The Swill, in which we cover this historic moment, the moment in which the red wave turned into Hurricane Ron, sweeping up from the Florida panhandle and petering out somewhere over Pennsylvania, I think. We've got Henry Olsen later joining us from Washington to tell us what the real story is, but we might have a stab at it first. How did you see the, the midterms? I think what we've found out is just how devoted and tribal the Democrat vote is in the US. They not only elected John Fetterman, who had a brain-damaging stroke during the primaries, but and who evidently can't speak a coherent sentence. But they elected dead people because they had the letter D after their name. They were Democrats. So when your devotion to the cause is so profound that you'll elect someone who no longer is on the planet in a, any kind of uh, real sense, that's a difficult thing to overcome in, in certain states. Yeah, the Democrat vote did seem sticky, but not amongst Latinos or blacks, where the long-term migration journey continued from Democrat to Republican. There's one specific cohort that I picked up and I'll be writing about in The Australian tomorrow, single women. Oh, yes. They were the ones who went for them big time. Because why? Because, well, single women are more likely to have spent more time at college, so they've been uh, immersed in that propaganda that comes out of there but more mm. so they've also got this big cohort in the states as here of single women or yep. women who've been haven't been able to get a partner because the men are so hopeless or is left with a child that they're raising themselves and they're therefore their partner their breadwinner becomes the government so they're going to vote democrat right yes yes it's great when the government's your boyfriend i think the margin was 37 percent among single women who preferred democrats you mentioned the student cohort mm. as well, who would, would have been largely on side with President Joe Biden and his pals with the loan forgiveness mm. on their ridiculous student loans where you're paying 140 grand to get a degree in ethnomusicology and end up working for the rest of your life in Starbucks. But I noticed that there's, what, like, there's now a federal judge has smacked that down, so they might not end up getting their money. They've been tricked for this election cycle. And now their loan forgiveness is in dispute. So they might have voted for something that they're not actually going to get, Nick. I noticed there's some interesting exit polls. Out. One, one asked the question on the COVID pandemic. The question is, do you think, public do you think your public school responded to the COVID-19 crisis? Do you think, so I'll read the whole question to you. Thinking about the way your local public schools responded to COVID-19, would you say the response went too far, not far enough, or about right. Of Republican voters, 85% said it went too far. Mm -hmm. Among yep. Democrat voters, however, 68% mm. said it didn't go far enough. So there you go. How much more do they want? Exactly. But it tells the story, doesn't it? You vote Democrats because you want government to intervene in your life, whether it's mm. to give you welfare, or whether it's to keep you safe from COVID, or whether it's to impose your woke ideology. All those things require heavy government intervention and that's why they vote for Joe Biden, I guess. Well, I guess the challenge is here, how do you 
as if you're on the Republican conservative side, how do you argue your position to a large number of people who just believe that you're wrong no matter what you say? If you say two plus two equals four, they will dispute that because you're a Republican. Mm. You're a conservative, Mm. therefore you're evil, not just wrong, but evil in a lot of cases. And it doesn't matter if you're a Trumpian MAGA Republican or just a straight-down-the-line ordinary Republican. There are so many people who will just go against you. Against that, of course, is the remarkable success of Ron DeSantis in Florida, which is extraordinary, but it's got to be considered something of an outlier in the overall scheme of things in the US at the moment. Very much so. And I did, I did notice that even women in, in Florida voted overwhelmingly for the Republicans, I think about 58%, whereas nationally, of course, they favoured the Democrats. By and large, I mean, it wasn't quite as dramatic as you'd think until you get into the cities and then you find they really favoured the Democrats. But DeSantis, I think, and I guess we get on to the big T question, don't we, the Donald Trump question. Mm. DeSantis, I think, seems to have far greater appeal amongst women than Trump could ever muster. Would you agree? On the numbers, you'd think so. But it could be, and I'll be writing about this in the Telegraph, it could be that Trump was the ideal candidate in 2016 because he was up against Hillary Clinton. It might have just been his time. And perhaps within the space of just six years, that that, that time frame has shifted so much or the circumstances have shifted. And Trump is no longer a viable kind of leader or kingmaker within the Republican Party. I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to get Henry Olsen's view on that. But right now, it seems to me Trump's looking like the elderly lion that's been pushed from his watering hole off into the desert by the young. (laughs) 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 But who knows? We've been wrong before, Jim. Not very often, not very often on this podcast, but we have occasionally been wrong. On this great battle between Mr. Trump and Ron DeSantis, we should hear a bit of Ron DeSantis first, shouldn't we? Because it's such, such a good feeling. Yes. Florida was a refuge of sanity when the world went mad. We stood as a citadel of freedom for people across this country and indeed across the world. We reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Bit of Churchill in the back back end there. Absolutely. What a great speech. We will fight them on the beaches. And Florida's got a lot of lovely beaches, Daytona and so on. But again, Florida was a bit of an outlier in this vote, although we did have some pockets in places like New York down the table. Like Obviously, the governorship went to a Democrat as usual in New York, but a lot of minor races there Hmm. switched over. But Long Beach, I think, is Long Island, rather. Long Island, yeah. Yeah, that's turned Republican. So the suburbs are kind of going that way, which is heartening. But overall, when you've got uh, the likes of John Fenneman winning, that's deeply concerning. Pennsylvania is just wrong. DeSantis, I hear, in the last couple of days of the before the election, was up campaigning in the north, which showed, I guess, one, how confident he was in his own state, but the mm. second, that he's obviously a national figure now. Uh, yep. And as here in Australia, I think we kind of admire him as the only substantial politician of his generation who's actually managed to found the key to attacking wokeness yep. he, he and it's 
He's clever. He takes the he waits for his opportunity. He's not going to try and take every hill, but he'll wait mm. for one he can take. Mm. Like when he took on Disney, uh, their their woke and transgender views, and then of course he's taken on the schools too. And the polling shows that that's where you can win this argument because people are very open to the idea that. Mm. Maybe if we spend a little less time deciding what a woman was, we might be able to actually be able to learn learn to add up and write and spell, and spell properly. Yeah, exactly. That's a very convincing argument in this country too. So I think he's become a bit of a role model for that. But that which all of which may, given I guess that he is now gaining in, in reputation amongst mm. con, not just Republicans but you know conservative Republicans, mm. it seems Donald Trump's attack rather sound rather desperate. Should, should we have a listen? Yes, please. Trump at seventy one. Rhonda Sanctimonious at 10%. Mike Pence at 7 Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. Rhonda Sanctimonious, not a very good gag. No. He's used it a couple of times since, so. I don't think it, it's not really taking a hold. But, yeah, Trump at the moment is sounding, if you were to design a, a sort of strategy that would marginalise yourself, he seems to be aiming at that which is curious. He's not talking about issues. He's talking about himself, which is always difficult for Donald Trump to resist. But he's not going to the same targets he went after in 2016 when he relentlessly targeted issues like jobs, income security, trust in local institutions Mm. and so on. It's a demand floundering a bit, really. I like the observation from one US commentator, Kurt Schlichter, who writes that conservative voters choose conservative candidates to do a solid job yeah whereas democrats vote to signal (laughs) and job performance is irrelevant and this is it's blindingly obvious on one level but also sharply observed on another because you look at uh, leftist heroes even in australia gough Whitlam was an incompetent prime minister led a ruinous government but is still a Labor icon. He didn't do a good job, but they don't care. Mm. How do conservatives get past that? It's at a level of almost religious devotion for the left, isn't it? It is, it is. I don't think you do get past it. My belief is that what we have to do, going back to this single women thing, it's mm. a massive increase in the number of single women in Australia in the last sentence, so under mm-hmm. 35. So mm. for every under 35 woman you meet, they are more likely now to be single than mm. living in a settled relationship, either married mm-hmm. or, or de facto. And of mm. the 45% who are in a relationship, they're much more likely to be in a de facto relationship than they would have been 10 years ago. And I don't think it's necessarily a lifestyle choice. I think, you know... Property, spending too much on price of property, spending far too much time at university, etc., etc., far too long, much time in the family home. Uh, I think those things are making people settle down into families far later, if at all. We know that from the stats, and that's got to be a problem for the Liberals over the long term, hasn't it? Because you can imagine so. The under thirty-five women were more likely to vote Green at the last election than Liberal, so that's your problem. That's your problem. I would have thought. It's a problem when anyone votes green. And uh, <laughs> we, of course, have our beloved Teal cohort, uh, yes. who I notice uh, have been named Women of the Year by Murray Claire magazine in a shock boil-over decision. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Murray Claire's gone woke? I can't believe it. Yes, uh, the magazine for rich white women nominates a bunch of rich white women to be their Women of the Year. No one saw that coming. It's almost it's astonishing, really. And uh, yeah. Well, there should be a male version of Murray Claire called Murray Claire. 
And it's just a guy <laughs> called Murray who lives in the Clare Valley or something. I don't know. <laughs> Making wine. <laughs> exactly. Ma- Speaking of the Teals, the, this whole cohort, we call it Teal because it's wider than that. Middle class women comfortably off, as you said earlier, more concerned about signalling than actually getting mm. something done. There's a whole market economy developed around it. I found the other day this advertisement for, you have no, you don't have children, young children, neither do I anymore. Mm. So I'm not in this market. I don't want to organise children's parties. But if you do want to, if you hear anybody who wants a children's party, mm. Tim, send them to little footprint parties, mm-hmm. kids' parties that don't cost the earth. They're put on by a Taramara performer, triple vaccinated, Oh, that's good. With Bachelor Musical Theatre. Not only that, <laughs> the children enjoy magic, face painting, and bio-glitter tattoos, game singing, dancing, eco-friendly, 100% eco-friendly, recycled, up- upcycled costumes, bio-glitter and bubbles, and wait for it, fully electric vehicle, carbon-neutrally charged. That's the market that's opening up. It's a high bar to jump, isn't it, if you want to get into the teal children's party market very hard yeah like you turn up with traditional makeup something oil based something that's involved mining or extraction or plastics or Mm. petroleum you get run out of town if you're an old school bozo the clown kind of children's entertainer you're likely to be flensed like a common whale you'd be skeletonized by teal piranhas what bio glitter bio glitter do you use non-bio glitter, Tim? Is that oh, routinely, you, of course. I guess it's, I don't know, maybe made out of hemp or worms or... I'm going to look it up right now. Let's look up. Bio, <laughs> is it two words? I assume so. Bio hyphen glitter, I think. I'll just check that. Yeah. You can buy it for fifty four ninety five at a place called, oh Jesus, Glitterous. Glitterous. <laughs> it's made from plants. <laughs> Have I got to beep that word out? <laughs> no, no, it's, a, it's a legitimate company, Nick. Made out of plants. It's yeah, made for plants, not plastic. Organic bio glitter that's eco-friendly mixed in Australia. This is from a site called The Glitter Tribe. It's not your average glitter, Nick. You'll be pleased to know. It's Good. been tested on Aussies, not animals. Did any of them survive? No, very few. You can get it in different varieties. Strawberry milkshake, celebration, golden sunset, desert flower, rose gold, Christmas tree, candy cane, reindeer dust. Well, you can't be making it out of reindeer. That's cruel and unusual. Mm. Uh, As seen on Dancing with the Stars, Neighbours, Bizarre, Vogue, In Style. (laughs) Certified to break down in nature. Why not just not make it in the first place? Is glitter really a necessity? Is it crucial? I think if you're a six-year-old having a Christmas birthday party, these days it is, but I don't recall it ever being part of our birthday parties. It was We used to get some crummy present wrapped in newspaper that we'd pass around. And, and the present was also a newspaper. Yeah, the newspaper is biodegradable, though, in its favour. That's true. Well, here's some testimonials for bio-glitter. This is from Fran at the Glitter Tribe. It is such a good feeling knowing you can dazzle and help protect the earth at the same time. I think this is what we all strive for. Monica L. writes, I'm thrilled I found you. I don't feel guilty wearing this glitter because there is no plastic. Great job, Glitter Tribe. And Lucinda P. attests, This mix of rainbow colours is so nice, it felt really soft too. Softer than you think glitter would be. (laughs) Makes you think, doesn't it? 
Oh, man, we live in a strange time. I never thought of glitter as being particularly abrasive, do you? Oh, I routinely use it to scrub the barnacles off the hull of my ship. (laughs) (laughs) Also perverse. And now we're delighted to welcome Henry Olsen to the podcast. Henry is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre in Washington, D.C., and a columnist with the Washington Post. He's a keen observer of the art and science of politics, whose analysis is informed by his encyclopedic knowledge of people and events in almost every country where democracy is practised. Henry, um, let me put you at your ease first by saying you're not the only person on this podcast whose predictions of a red wave in the U.S. midterms was dumped on by a tsunami of reality. But uh, Tim and I at least have the excuse of being 12,000 kilometres away from the nearest mainland ballot box. (laughs) You, on the other hand, live in Washington, D.C. What's yours? (laughs) Yeah, look, um, fundamentally, the issue in American elections is typically uh, if you don't like the guy in power, you vote for the other guy. And there's uh, in our uh, public polling, 10% 10% of Americans slightly disapprove of Joe Biden and over 40% strongly disapprove of him. The reason Democrats did better than expected is prior elections, those 10% are, uh, have tended to break against the president's party by 20 to 40%. You know, do the math, that's two to 4% of the electorate. That would be talking about another 20 to 30 seats. Uh, for the first time in years, uh, the Democrats won that group, which means that people who don't hate Joe Biden, but don't think he's doing a good job stuck with the Democrats. That's fundamentally why all the predictions were wrong. And it's fundamentally what the Republican Party ought to be trying to figure out is why did these people who don't like Joe Biden not respond to our ads telling them to give us a chance because Joe Biden screwed up uh, the economy? Uh, What is it that worked with them? What do we have to overcome? And that raises the question of Donald Trump, because that's certainly something the Democrats tried to make an issue of. And Trump, who always wants to be at the center of attention, uh, was making himself the center of attention the weekend before the election. And it could very well be. Research shows that that was a decisive element. Uh, But there's certainly... uh, History was made, but not in the way Republicans thought history was going to be made. So the Democrats might not have been quite as balmy as we thought in in running on essentially a, a referendum on Donald Trump, who'd been out of office for two years. That that may have been effective for them amongst their chosen constituency. Yeah, I didn't think it was, and I didn't see that in the polls before. But you know, I can't deny what the exit poll shows. You know, I can't deny the fact that a guy who uh, has uh, some of the worst job approval ratings of somebody two years into their presidency, nonetheless, avoided getting his hat handed to him. And when you take a look and you see the ahistoric break on this one set of voters, you have to say, okay, something caused them to do this. And I can hypothesize, I don't have more than hypothesis, you know, Uh, but you have to assume that something the Democrats did or the Republicans didn't do, and likely a combination thereof, caused this. And Trump was one of the factors involved. So it's hard to that and the fact that a lot of the Trumpian candidates, 
in key areas did much worse than normal Republicans. You know, that you had Ron Johnson winning re-election in Wisconsin and the Trump pick candidate for governor uh, running three and a half points behind them. You had um, Dr. Oz losing by four points and the other Trump pick candidate running many points behind and that dragged the whole ticket down in Pennsylvania. So you're just looking to say Trump back candidates did not do as well as normal candidates. And that too can be a consideration. Uh, Henry, in a lot of ways, this is sort of like um, uh, Churchill in 45, beat Hitler, lose an election. This is like the flip side of that. Destroy the economy and at least not lose an election. I mean, it's not as though the Democrats gained ground, but they held the line. Yeah. When, you, when you're reading it, stuff like that, this is throwing a lot of conventional politics out the door, isn't it? When you when you see an economy in this situation, anyone coming from outside politics and just looking at the raw numbers here before the election would say, well, it's going to go against the Dems. It has to. Yet, as you point out, there's, there's so many other factors involved. Trump is one. But then you've got the outlier of Florida. Exactly. How do we fit Florida into this picture when it goes 20 points to Ron DeSantis? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what uh, you had was really pretty much no involvement of Trump. Uh, DeSantis was able to take abortion off the issue by passing a 15-week ban mm. of the procedure so that it is still legal in the first trimester. In other words, what they did in Florida was listen to public opinion and adapt to it. You know, gosh, you know, that that's a strange concept. Um, you know, I'm pro-life. I would love to have a much more pro-life position, but I understand yeah. politics and I know why you would do what you did. Um, and so you, you had uh, somebody who Democrats might consider extreme, but who independents might say that's actually kind of sensible. And uh, it wasn't just DeSantis. Rubio won by double digits. Uh, Republicans running for Congress outperformed where they did uh, years, you know, like uh, the uh, Elvira Maria Salazar is in a tr district that Trump barely carried. She won by 15 points. There's a woman named Anna Paulina Luna who was running in a new seat that Trump won by four points. She won it by nine. It wasn't just DeSantis. It was up mm. and down the board. Absolutely. And also with DeSantis, uh, to the puzzlement of many on the left, he's secured a massive Hispanic vote. Now, this this actually shouldn't be a mystery to a lot of people because every working-class American I know has Hispanic friends because there's, there's a commonality of interest across those groups. Uh, working for a start, religion, and traditional family associations and values. But it, it has been hard to get that group converted en masse towards the Republican side. It's happened, and it's not entirely, I think, because of the, the Cuban aspect. It's uh, across the board in, in Florida. Right. I think I tweeted on this on election night. You know, one of the most important things to understand is that both Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis carried a county south of Orlando, Osceola County. Well, that mm -hmm. won't mean anything to you Australians, but it's the only county in the United States that has a plurality of residents who are Puerto Rican, and it's been historically Democrat. So he got Cubans and he got Puerto Ricans, which are the two largest groups of Latinos in Mexico in mm -hmm. there. And, you know, if we broke it down, we'd probably find he did very well with the South and Central Americans, who are the other major group. So, no, it wasn't just a Cuban thing. It was across the different nationalities that have different tendencies to back Republicans. Was there a mini wave in New York, Henry? A mini red wave? 
Yeah, uh, but there was a question where Democrats were clearly in control and you had strong non-Trumpian candidates running for Congress. You um, you had a local uh, supervisor in Nassau County and you had a, a local guy uh, who's gay running on the north, north shore of Long Island and you had three state legislators running in the Hudson River Valley and you had the crime question. So what happened there is that I think people said Democrats are in control uh, I don't like this crime. I don't like this inflation. There's no crazy Trump uh, character involved. And, you know, they know that abortion is not going to go away in New York anyway, because it's New York. Hmm. Um, so they uh, went to uh, back um, local Republicans uh, who campaigned on issues that they cared about. Also, I think a lot of a lot of uh, New Yorkers might have been voting in Florida as well. Well, that you know, people have suspected that uh, there were a lot. There's actually something out talking about uh, that Republicans may have lost two seats in the outer areas of New York, one in New York State and one in Connecticut, hmm. because of migration of people to Florida. <laughs> All the conservatives live in Florida and Texas now. Florida, where woke goes to die, as uh, Ron DeSantis said in the week. Henry, Trump was out at the weekend making some interventions. We'll just have a listen to him. Trump at 71, Ron DeSanctimonious at 10%, Mike Pence at 7 Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. We've, we've had politicians here, we've had political leaders here uh, who've left office and then gone on to trash their predecessors often before an election. But this one really takes the biscuit in Australian terms, coming out and criticising a leading member of your own side days before an important election like this sounds like absolute treachery. Are we misreading it? Is it, is it? Do they read it differently in America? Or was this a bad move by Trump? Viewed as Trump being Trump, which is say selfish and self-absorbed. And will it backfire on him? Well, backfire in what way? What's been happening over the last 72, 48 hours is that you're beginning to see more and more people say, we can't let Trump do this to us again. You know, that uh, we have to make sure he's not the next nominee. And so just in the last hour, he's put out a statement attacking Fox and all of the people on Fox is mm -hmm. colluding against him and attacking Ron DeSantis and another one of these Trumpian statements. And it's very interesting to see what's going on is that people are finally beginning to say, look, this guy is a net negative and it's time to get rid of the net negative and he's pushing back. And uh, I think the dam is finally going to break about criticism to Trump. Compared to this time last week, you'd have to say that Ron DeSantis, if he is the leading contender uh, against Trump, his chances have risen considerably, you'd have to say. Well, yeah, among elites. I don't know how much among voters yet. You know, we just don't know. You know, but certainly among the sort of people who pay attention to this and organize and help determine, you know, money and you know, is that basically uh, there are Trump diehard loyalists, but there are a lot of people who said, I'm done with him. Voted for him twice, liked the guy, good president, but it's time to move on. And that's something we have we've heard of that you know sub rosa but people are saying it more and more out in the open and that's something that's really interesting henry it is a matter of some bafflement that while floridians were able to in between cleaning alligators out of swimming pools and sending venezuelans to martha's vineyard holidays were able to count 22 million votes before breakfast 
Well, they didn't have 22 million. It was like 8 million. But anyway. Oh, 22 million people in the state. Sorry. But they got all that counted very quickly uh, while also rebuilding bridges after hurricanes. Arizona, they're still counting. When did Arizona lose the ability to count? What's happened in that? (laughs) Well, they have different laws. The thing is, the thing is that unlike Australia, where you have federal elections and you all follow the same rules in the mm-hmm. United States, every state sets different rules. So Florida's rule is that twofold. One, any ballot that is going to be counted must be in the hands of the elected officials by election day. Mm-hmm. And they allow county officials to count their mail ballot or to process their mail ballots well in advance of election day. Arizona allows you to postmark your ballots and have them come in late. And they allow you to um, uh, have, they have more late arriving ballots and they don't have the capacity or they don't have the law set up so that they can process them more quickly. So, you know, like for Arizona, they actually say, you know, get your vote in by like five days before the election, because these are the ones we'll be able to count. Uh, on, on before election day, Florida doesn't have that limitation. So Florida, you know, basically they they're still counting ballots there because they're surely ballots they received on Tuesday that they couldn't mm-hmm. uh, count. But they get the bulk of their ballots earlier in the office and they process them faster. So uh, it's just a different system. Uh, I I think Florida is a wonderful example of a vote voting system that works and provides wide-scale access and uh, is transparent and gives you results quickly. Thank you very much for that explanation, Henry, because a lot of um, Australians aren't aware of the differences state by state, and in some cases, county by county. Uh, And then, of course, we're going to see another example of that with Georgia, with its unique Senate runoffs. If you don't get to 50%, it's it's another vote, which we're going to have, I think, early next month. Yes, it'll happen early in December. And there, there would be an absolute rebellion, wouldn't there, re- re- resembling possibly the uh, Boston Tea Party, if from Washington they were to say we are going to impose a nationwide body like the Australian Election Commission here to run the election. That would just be impossible, wouldn't it, under the American conception of federalism? Republicans are staunchly opposed to that. They want state autonomy. Um, I think... I, I think if you put truth serum in a lot of Democrats, they'd be perfectly fine with that. But Republicans would oppose it to a person. Tell me about the uh, the popular vote, which uh, which I gather was uh, in favor of the Republicans. So they won the popular vote without winning as many seats as they, they hoped. That surely indicates that in the places where Republicans uh, representatives were vote were elected, the people voted for them with even more enthusiasm. Uh, than previously. So is this the polarization of politics or you do realize, read something else into this? No, I, I think there's a couple of things. You know, again, votes haven't been fully counted yet. You know, even places that are largely complete are still adding some votes to their total because we have, uh, your country takes a couple of weeks to go through all of the provisionals and early postals and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. You know, I, I religiously follow uh, every one of your federal elections. I'm constantly rechecking the Australian Election Commission's tally room. And it's like, <laughs> ooh, let's see what's the preference, you know, whether or not the TPP or the TCP is updated for the latest boxes and all that stuff. 
Um, <laughs> you understand this stuff better than we do, by the way, Henry. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that you may have a sort of thing that happened in the British election of 2015, which is that everyone was surprised when David Cameron got a majority because all the polls suggested he didn't have the level of popular support to get the majority. Yeah. And what they found afterwards is that when you looked at the marginal constituencies versus the safe constituencies was that you had a different swing that the places that knew they were marginal people acted differently, basically deciding in those areas, we know we are the ones who are determining government. So we're going to take this ultra seriously. And they chose Cameron rather than um, rather than um, coalition and chaos, um, which is based, you know, what they were, uh, the Cameron force was, was selling. I suspect you're going to find a little bit of that here, you know, which is that when you uh, saw graphic in Michigan that said that uh, in the congressional races in every in all the districts uh, that are safe the motion was towards Republicans but in the four districts that were contested the motion was to the Democrats um, so I'm going to wait until all the results are finally done and then I'm going to go back to my list of contested districts and test it out you know just say okay uh, compared to the presidential returns uh, how, is there a pattern uh, now clearly um, I'll have to exclude things like uh, the races around New York, uh, because there it's quite clear that there was a swing to the Republicans of a significant number uh, across the board. But um, you know, it may very well be that Michigan was an anomaly, and it may very well be I find that um, people in uh, swing areas uh, acted differently. The danger I would have thought for Biden right now, you could see him in fairly self-congratulatory mood in the press conference earlier this week. In fact, more coherent than I've heard him speak for some time. But the danger is, of course, they take this as a ringing endorsement of all their their uh, progressive woke ideas and uh, and just go down harder that road instead of recognising, as I think they should, I don't know what your thoughts are, recognising that this was actually a very uh, narrow um endorsement if it was an endorsement at all and that they need to take messages they take need to take lessons out of this about returning to the center of politics yeah well i mean the, he was at, he did a press conference yesterday and he was asked well are you going to do anything different he said no uh, i'm not going to do anything different people don't understand uh, yet uh, all the good things that we've done hmm. so um sounds to me like it's uh, doubling down i noticed yeah. there was a panel i think on msnbc henry where they were canvassing the idea of a John Fetterman presidential run. John Fetterman, of course, being the Democrat candidate who's been successful in Pennsylvania, despite lacking the ability to speak. And you would have thought prior to this current political mood that someone with his um, his cognitive issues would be a fairly um, long odds call to be a presidential candidate, but perhaps not after Joe Biden. You know, this is the thing is, I think people get ahead of themselves. And I did not see uh, the press or the reports on that. I just saw the headlines of it. And look, Fetterman did better in white, blue collar areas. And I'm sure that's exciting. Uh, mm. But the fact is, it's still Fetterman. Yes, yes, with all that entails. Also, I think Pennsylvania elected a dead man. You know, we will see what happens. Um, I would think... No, I mean a literal dead man. There was a guy who died a month or so ago. Oh, right, right. Yes, I, I thought you were referring to Fetterman. <laughs> well, it's an easy mistake to make. In the 2000 uh, Missouri Senate race, the candidate running against incumbent John Ashcroft died in a plane crash. 
uh, about a week and a half before the election. And they still elected him. Well, they blocked the message you were sending. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah the, the thing is that people are, are very partisan and also they understand. You know, in the case of the senator, you know, what that meant was that the, the governor would appoint the replacement. I think the governor was a Democrat at the time, so they could appoint another Democrat. So yeah. uh, you, you vote for the dead man to get the live man uh, of your same uh, partisan affiliation. Of course, you have nothing analogous like that in Australia. It's a good slogan to run on. Vote for the dead man, get the live man. You could run on that as a presidential <laughs> thing in 24. That'd be uh, inspiring. Yeah. We're all a little bit nervous about making predictions after last after this week, but let's have a go anyway. The 2024 Democratic presidential nominee. This is a hard one, isn't it? I, I see that Sportsbet still has Joe Biden as favourite at $2.50, but since the midterms, Gavin Newsom has moved up into second place at $6.00. Uh, or rather level second place with Kamala Harris, which is an improvement for him. Uh, there is no obvious replacement, though, for Biden. There. Even now, is there? Or is Gavin Newsom the man? No, there is no obvious replacement. The thing is that normally the obvious replacement is the incumbent vice president. Kamala Harris has impressed nobody. Hmm. Uh, so if Joe Biden were to decide not to run again, it would be one thing if he resigned and she was the incumbent. That would be a different circumstance. But no one is going to think that Joe Biden is going to be so selfless to do that. Um, she would not get through without a significant challenge. I don't think you can really forecast. Is you know the thing is that people move up and down in these polls, and yeah. um, how you perform actually matters. You know, if you go back to 2015 and. Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, uh, was a strong national presidential candidate, but then he um, spent too much money, went broke uh, too early and performed poorly in presidential debates. And uh, he literally went from first or second place to zero support overnight. Wow. Zero. Mm, yeah. It was an amazing poll. Uh, so you just look at that and say anything can happen. Now, my betting tip at this stage is uh, Angelina Jolly, $176 on Angelina Jolly becoming the Democratic presidential nominee uh, alongside Ch Ch Chelsea Clinton. But it just shows, you know, I mean, if people are seriously placing bets at that level, it's wide open. Yeah, God bless America. It might, it might be time, I think, to cast our eyes uh, further afield for a Democrat candidate. Uh, I mean, in 1990... Bill Clinton wasn't on the national stage. He was a, a marginal sort of state character. Two years later, president. So there might be someone hovering around who um, who could, uh, could come out of nowhere. I don't think it's going to be Angelina Jolie, by the way. On the Republican side, now this is interesting. I've just called this up. This is breaking news. Uh, the favourite to win the Republican presidential nominee is now Ron DeSantis, uh, $2.37 narrowly ahead of Donald Trump. That is a reversal from what we saw last weekend. Uh, Mike Pence at eighteen, $18. Uh, good luck with that one. But that, that is interesting, isn't it, Henry? It suggests that when the uh, New York Post uh, produced its uh, headlines mocking Trump earlier this week, it may have sniffed something in the wind of, in terms of public opinion. Well, the other thing about betting markets is who gets on betting markets uh, or uh, or who's setting the odds. You know, I'm not, I don't know your particular betting yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's odds makers who are trying to uh, balance out interest. But, you know, what you've got is the sort of person who makes those bets is the sort of person who pays close attention to politics. Mm. Uh, and, you know, clearly among that sort of person, 
the movement against Trump has been swift and strong. Henry, it's been a great uh, privilege and a pleasure to have you on with the up-to-date and close analysis of the US policy political scene and this interesting election, which the consequences of which we shall follow with great interest. Thank you for joining us on The Swill. Look forward to having you back again soon. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Nice meeting you, Jim. The other big event last week, of course, Jim, and who could miss it? Cop 27. Presumably the previous 26 cops weren't much cop. But anyway, they got... (laughs) Number 27, out of all the cops, this one seemed most misplaced, most off there in a bubble, whilst the rest of the world is worried about the real engineering challenge of keeping the lights on when you've just got a shitload of wheelmills but no coal or gas. They're off there, you know, talking ever more about targets and doing more. Antonio Guterres, of course, the Guterres is the is the Secretary General of the United Nations, a job he uses to spray decent economies like ourselves or countries that have done well for themselves to mm. bag them and ignore those real climate villains like China. But let's have a listen to what he had to say. The clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives. Our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Humanity has a choice, cooperate or perish. It is either a climate solidarity pact or a collective suicide pact. A window of opportunity remains open, but only a narrow shaft of light remains. So let's fight together and let's win for the 8 billion members of our human family and for generations to come. No climate cliche left unturned. (laughs) What a performance. He really ramped up the Greta Thunberg there, didn't he? Greta's not even there, of course. She didn't go to this because she accused the, as we spoke last week, spoke about last week, she accuses the COP27 of being a greenwashing exercise. But he's trying to claw back that ground, is Mr Gutierrez. But I just can't get past the fact that this is just a bunch of idiots in Egypt at a Coca-Cola-sponsored gab fest (laughs) trying to tell us how to change the way we live. It's so strange. It doesn't make any sense, Nick. Yeah, I delved in to look, as you know, I'm a bit of a statistics bore here, but I, I decided to have a look at the GDP of Portugal between 1995 and 2003. Stay with me, because it'll be relevant. Uh, so 1995, mid-90s, Portugal's mm. doing quite nicely. You know, they recovered from the Salsasar days and they're, they're tipping along about 4% growth. Nice economy. Mm-hmm. Uh by 2003, they're into recession. What mm. happened between 2000, 1995 and 2003? They elected a socialist prime minister. Works every time. It won, yes, indeed, won Antonio <laughs> Guterres. <laughs> so <laughs> having tanked his own country's economy, he then sets off for a successful career in diplomacy. <laughs> and ends up in this esteemed position telling the rest of the world how to manage its own affairs. <laughs> That's Well, of course, he's got the job that Kevin Rudd aimed at. You know, we forget that period, don't we, that Rudd was in the frame and if not for the intervention of his now very close friend Malcolm Turnbull, he might have been delivering that very same speech in Egypt. 
and telling us we're all going to die, which is... Um, I think it was a close race at the time, wasn't it? They were both equally well qualified as failed politicians, which I think is the number one. <laughs> yeah. How much did you tank the economy by? Oh, tens of billions of dollars. Oh, well, I, I went bigger. It's, the UN's really got to go, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's the worst institution on the face of the earth. Does it do anything well? This is the thing. There's a sort of public perception of the UN as this massive, important, influential entity. But when they turned up in Queanbeyan recently to do a prison inspection, <laughs> the guys on the desk just told them to bugger off. <laughs> a couple of night shift guys on the desk, sorry UN, you know, you're not coming in here to interview the, interview the few people in the drunk tank overnight. I think the UN does a few things moderately well. The things when it's quite an obvious and, and task, like mm. for instance, keep peace on the border between Turkish Cyprus and and the Greek Cyprus, mm. uh, or equally well between uh, Israel and the Badlands up on the southern Lebanese border. And they did well running elections in Cambodia. You know, they do little things well, but when mm. they go for the big things, like saving the planet, they it's are catastrophic. bloody hopeless. Absolutely. What were they thinking at COP1 in 1995 when they handed this task to the United Nations? But because since 1995, have gone up. You know, not by a little, but by a lot. Most of it's China. You'd think on that basis that you haven't actually reduced emissions, UN. We'll, we'll take this job off and give it to somebody else. But no, they just get to double down even harder. <laughs> <laughs> Are we in line now to possibly host COP29 or 30 or whenever it is, a couple of years down the track? Oh, I do hope so. Uh, I, I am there. I am there, man. Yeah, yeah. Lock me yeah. in. Yeah, I am. yeah, yeah. I'm going to be front and centre. Particularly if they let Baz Luhrmann do the opening and closing ceremonies. Then I'm, be, I'm in. <laughs> He'll be using a lot of bio-glitter, no doubt. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. God, imagine how many ABC people would be getting credentials for that. There'd be so many lanyards being thrown around. Exactly. Down yeah. at Ultimo. Here's one for you, here's one for you, here's one for you. Everyone line up, get in the, in the 15 buses... But actually, no, it would be kind of an unusual COP event in Australia because there'd be no real need for what is the signature thing of a COP is private aircraft, private jets. So you'd have to relocate the ABC overseas just temporarily so they could fly in (laughs) just to keep the COP tradition alive of massive private air travel among those who are telling us that we're all going to die because of things like air travel. Well, Tim, that's it for another swill. Thank you for joining me. And sorry about the technical difficulties. Third time lucky. We'll be back again next week, I hope, with another edition of the Six O'Clock Swill. See you then. Fantastic. Every American and LBJ is with Australia all the way. Australia is the best place in the world to bring up a family. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. The red wave that's coming is going to be like the elevator doors opening up on The Shining. (laughs) How good is Australia? Florida is where Wolf goes to die.